down they're big you know i, I don't yeah. know it's crow raven i have no idea it's black that's all i know big black. <clears throat> you're gonna learn in my talk janet what the difference between a crow and a raven <laughs> got a slide on that <laughs> well that'll be helpful yeah ravens are actually famous for lining their nest with uh, animal hair i don't know if it's as common in crows but ravens that's a it was a big bird yeah, I, I, I really couldn't tell you. I, I, I just should know. I know there's many things I should know in life, but I'm, I'm resigned to never learning them at this point. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, Ryan says he's. Oh, he's calling in and can talk now. Ryan, can you hear us? He First is. Oh. He's muted. Yeah. Can you try to unmute? Well, we can't hear you, Ryan, if you're talking now. You can I can't us. unmute him. I can let me try asking him to unmute and see if that does anything. Is does does he have a speaking part? He could if he I mean, I, I thought for uh, Brendan and Ryan, I would just um we could uh, this. This work. Yep, we can hear you now. Hello. Hey Ryan. Okay, good. I pushed star six. Uh, yeah. Hey, sorry about that. Yeah. Older uh, PC, it takes it take a very long time to boot up. Uh, I had it sitting there all day and it just shut down at the worst possible time. So sorry about that. But that's OK. Um, I can talk until I'm on. <laughs> no problem. Can you, can you you can't see the images then? Your screen? Um, no, I can't. No. Not okay. yet. No, I, can't. I have faith that your computer will, will reboot itself in time. <laughs> yeah, And if not, uh, I think Janet, you're going to read questions once we get to the end of the slides. Yep, and, and, and then, you, can see, you can see how we do it. You know, um, so the, um, you know, and at, at, for some of these comments, I'm going to click answer live and then done. Go Red Wings! <laughs> All right, so we are live streaming now on on Facebook, um, and um, all right, Ralph has put. A comment in here oh dear john james audubon a violent naturalist painter apparently mm -hmm. yeah i think that's <laughs> i think there's a lot of angst about audubon and his reputation in modern uh, ornithology and the audubon society like kind of um uh, a lot of historical figures but I mean, he wasn't unusual in uh, using a shotgun to to collect birds because they didn't have the optics that they have today, and you know, it was a different ethic. Any bird watch watchers still doing this today? I hope not. <laughs> using using like uh, sh there are uh, biologists that will use like taxonomists that will use shotguns to collect birds sometimes, but. At least they were 20 years ago. I don't know if Ryan, you know if that's there's probably some of that still going on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's done really sparingly. Where it does happen, it does create some controversy. I know, like when a new species is being described, they like to have a type specimen, yeah. and if that species is extremely rare, that can be a bit problematic. But it is something that co that occurs, but you know, certainly much much less often than it did a couple hundred years ago. That is good to know. All right, give me a minute to get my act together here. And then I'm going to share my screen, right, Janet? I have a few slides I'd like to share, but oh, yeah, you let, me, 
Let me just say, give me a, a, a moment to get my act together. I have a couple screens and that, that never really works out. Let's do that. All right. So I've lost my Zoom screen. Does that ever happen to you? Escape. Can you guys still hear me? Yeah. I don't yeah. know what happened yeah. to my green screen. You have that little zoom in the bottom that you could click on to bring it back up? I'm working on it. I'm closing screens like crazy. No, you know, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna begin without sharing my, sometimes I feel like these things happen for a reason. And I did have quite a few. Um, so I might close with some of my um, opening slides, but in the meantime, I think I'm just gonna get started um, by giving a pretty short, um, uh, introduction to Dave um, Flashpuller. So good evening, everybody. My name is Janet Callahan, and I am the host of Husky Bites. This is our last episode of season seven. It's hard to believe that we have come so come so far since summer of 2020. <clears throat> um, this evening, we are going to be focusing on learning a little bit about birds uh, and birding uh, and to lead us off in that effort, we have um, David Flaspolar, uh, who is uh, serving right now the College of Forest Resources and Forest Sciences and Natural Resources. I got it wrong. Forest? Uh, yeah, Forest Resources and Environmental Science. Sciences. Okay. Uh, as interim dean, uh, and where he is also a, a, a professor. And with that, I'm going to leave you to say a little bit more about yourself, David, and turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, Jana, and uh, really, I really appreciate being invited to do this. When I think you invited me back in like September, and I thought, oh, April, that's forever, and here we are, we made it. So, um, yeah, it's an honor to be part of this really interesting series, and uh, and a pleasure to to be able to reach out to so many people. Um, looks like 145 is what I have here. And uh, as we go along, uh, we have also uh, Ryan Rutherford with us, who's uh, a PhD student in our college, and Brendan Letty, who's an undergraduate student here at Michigan Tech in social science. And they're both, uh, they both bring uh, enormous bird-related experience, both in research and observation. And so um, I think the questions in the end could be directed to any of the three of us, and uh, I might refer some questions to Ryan and Brendan, and they should feel free to to speak up if there's if they want to add something to anything that I'm that I've said. So, with that, I'll go ahead and um, you can tell me if this looks. Yep, looks good. We can good. see the whole screen. Yeah, good. Let me just get rid of some of this stuff. Wow. Is that a hummingbird in the palm of your hand? Yeah, that's, um, well, that was taken last fall when I got a call from uh, our current provost's wife who works at the child care center on campus and they had a, a ruby-throated hummingbird trapped in their building and I, I was able to go over there and catch it with a butterfly net and then uh, just moments after this picture was taken, it, um, it flew off on its way 
down to the southern U.S. Uh, or even into Mexico and, um, and Central America and the Caribbean where they spend the winter. So, yeah, that look, I love that look on that little girl's face because it was just, uh, you know, you don't get that look at a hummingbird very often uh, sitting still because they're just so active. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, that's the only hummingbird we have up here commonly, the ruby throat, which breeds uh, even all the way up to Alaska, which is very unusual for hummingbirds. So it's, it's the one species in the eastern North America that is a common uh, visitor to your hummingbird feeder. So uh, I titled this talk, 10 Ways the Birdwatching Will Increase Your Quality of Life. And that was a little bit of a challenge to myself. Uh, because this isn't, um, I'm a scientist, I'm an ornithologist, but I'm really, uh, this talk is going to be a little bit of science and a little bit of sort of, um, sort of dabbling in areas that I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in, but that I, that I think I'm on pretty good ground. And I think uh, Ryan and Brendan can add to this in terms of how paying attention to nature in general and experiencing nature in general, but birds specifically has, uh, improve the quality of my life and my my children's lives and uh, and a lot of other people around me. So I'll just uh, go ahead and get started. Or maybe I have to hold on. There we go. So uh, just to, to complete the introduction, there's a picture of my ornithology class last spring with uh, Ryan as the TA down in the Barriga Plains uh, looking at a spruce grouse or a couple spruce grouse that I think we spotted there. And um, and over on the right is Brendan in Horicon uh, Marsh, which is a, a beautiful wetland complex uh, managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service down in Wisconsin. And then below is a picture of uh, the uh, field ornithology class that Ryan and I and Brendan actually took out to um, Whitefish Point last year. And I want to acknowledge, uh, first of all, my parents here pictured when they were much younger than I am now, maybe about uh, uh, Brendan's age, and my father there, uh, Ron Flaspolar, and my mother, Helen, Helen Flaspolar, or Morrison was her maiden name, who really, uh, I, I um, attribute to them a lot of, uh, a lot of the happiest things in my life uh, that they introduced me to, uh, including the natural world and, and birds. And then um, also my wife, uh, who's a painter, and uh, I, she wouldn't, probably call herself an ornith she wouldn't call herself an ornithologist certainly might not even call herself a birder maybe a casual birder but she does uh is a painter and she incorporates a lot of natural themes into her uh work and if you're um, if you're interested she has four pieces currently hanging at the faculty show at finlandia university right now and also last week during the talk by john jazek in the seaman mineral museum uh the, the subject of aurora borealis came up so I, I have a neighbor here who's quite a talented photographer, and he shared these three photos of the event uh, of uh, just a week or two, a week and a half ago, which was said to be the best aurora in 40 years in this area. So these are pictures from the Copper Country uh, of that event, which was uh, sadly, I slept through the whole thing. I don't know, Brendan and Ryan, were, did you guys see this? I went out to McLean. No, unfortunately. I mean, but I was like nothing I've ever seen before in my life. I can't. Yeah. That's that was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just share that because we promised uh, to share those uh, last week. So to get back to birds, uh, a little bit of history. The the history of human bird interactions goes back 
well over 100,000 years. Some of the early evidence was um, uh, jewelry that was made from the talons of some European eagles. Uh, more recently, cave art uh, has been found depicting birds in addition to the kind of the famous uh, depictions of horses and uh, woolly rhinos and various Pleistocene uh, megafauna from Europe. And uh, the use of, um, so that's an owl there, in the, uh, an eagle owl image in, from France in the middle. And then, uh, of course, birds have been used as symbols and continue to be used as symbols of everything from peace with the dove on the left and uh, war with um, eagles often or other birds of prey uh, used that way by uh, nations historically and even today. Uh, the Great Seal of the United States kind of incorporates both the uh, uh, the bald eagle, our national bird, and then also the uh, international symbol, um, the olive branch on the on the left there, and then the uh, arrows on the right. So these are just some places that birds pop up as uh, used symbolically, and uh, flags are another uh, way that uh, human beings have used birds and their kind of symbolic value. And these are just six examples of many uh, that are uh, found in countries around the world. Really diverse range of birds here. There's an eagle there for Mexico, uh, a condor in Ecuador, uh, um, an a albatross in Kiribati, which is a South Pacific island nation. Uganda has a crane and then a, uh, a parrot in Dominica, and then the Quetzal, which is a kind of trogon from Central America there for Guatemala. So uh, with that idea of birds as symbols, I was gonna just pause a moment and see if people can think about how many bird species um, they can name that are commonly used as sports, sports. These are modern sports. that could be college teams or professional teams. And I was going to enter, have people enter in the chat, but I think technically it's a little bit easier if you just think about it a little bit and then I'll share a, a brief list. And if anyone has anything uh, that they want to add, does anyone want to shout out a couple of them here that has the ability to shout out? The Orioles. Orioles, Baltimore Orioles, yeah. And, and even Orioles are used with a lot of high school and college teams. Red wings, wings, technically. Yeah, red wings, yeah. <laughs> red wings, yeah. That one I didn't think of, but that's a good one we were talking about earlier. I don't know uh, what species the red wings belong to, um, but You'd have to dig into the history of that that uh, hockey team. So yeah, uh, eagles. eagles. We got eagles. We got cardinals. Hawkeyes in the uh, Q and A. Oh yeah, good. Yeah, Hawkeyes. Iowa Hawkeyes who lost that game last night, unfortunately. But, aren't there uh, penguins? Aren't penguins a team, or am I making that up? Yeah, the is it the Pittsburgh Penguins? I think is a hockey team. Yeah, yeah, Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, but they're probably not birds, for all I know. Oh, they're birds. They're, they're very unusual birds, but yeah, flightless birds. And I, I don't know if you're paying attention to the, the March Madness, the men's team from the Florida Atlantic were the owls. So that's another example, Roadrunners, Blue Jays. So uh, humans have found a, a, or placed a value or found a purpose or a use for, for birds in uh, whatever attributes, because they represent their geography and the, the, the place these teams come from, or they have sort of qualities that humans uh, attribute to birds. Uh, there's the Cardinals there for, from St. Louis. And then the, the one that always kind of makes me, 
I guess ironically, or no pun intended, grind my teeth, is the Louisville Cardinals, which which they've inserted teeth into the uh, the bill of the Cardinal, I think, to make it more fierce looking. But of course, no birds have teeth. So that one always, I don't know if that bothers Ryan and Brendan, but it always kind of like <laughs> irritates you when I see that. So uh, why birds? I mean, biodiversity is uh, an enormous, uh, wonderful attribute of our planet. And birds uh, with about 10,000 species are um, certainly not the most diverse group um, compared to arthropods and even fish, but for terrestrial vertebrates, they are the most diverse group. So they, for reasons of their history and their ability to disperse widely and go to all corners of the earth, they've, um, uh, they've represent an enormous amount of diversity that I think inherently makes them interesting to study. They're um, primarily diurnal, so they're active in the day, unlike many mammals, which tend to be more nocturnal. They're active year round, so they don't, um, some of them have like a daily hibernation called torpor, but they don't uh, sleep through the winter like some species, including um, bears. Uh, they're colorful, their eyesight is very similar to ours, even, even better than ours, a wider range of, of color vision, but it's similar and consequently they have a, um, their um, evolution has given them colors that, uh, that we can appreciate. Um, uh, penguins can't fly and ostriches and other species can't fly, but most birds can fly and that makes them uh, uh, interesting to humans and have, have uh, humans have admired that for a long time. Birds are everywhere, not only geographically from both poles, uh, so they, they span, they occupy uh, every continent, and they also live in everywhere from our beautiful UP forests to urban parks and even urban sort of concrete jungles, you can still find uh, birds, house sparrows and pigeons and other sort of urban adapted birds. They're intelligent. They're some of the most intelligent creatures out there on par or even maybe more with some of the great apes and um, and um, dolphins and porpoises. Uh, you can actually attract them to your house quite easily, which isn't that easy to do with a lot of biodiversity through feeding and also through um, plantings and gardening that favors the resources that birds are looking for. Uh, we're at a wonderful time technologically where birding has never been easier and identifying bird has never been easier. And I'll give you an example of some of that uh, emerging technology right now. It's, it's an inexpensive hobby. You really just need a field guide and a pair of binoculars to get started. And binoculars are getting uh, cheaper and better um, all the time. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that birding and time in nature in general enriches your life and supports uh, mental and physical health. I'll just play a quick uh, vocalization of this bird, which is, is a very common um, summer bird here in the UP and throughout much of Eastern North Track America. 14, American woodcock painting an aerial display. So if you ever have the good fortune to see an American woodcock male display, this is what they start with. And then when they take off, they do a kind of twittering sound and the males are displaying for the females and they display on kind of open grounds openings within forests. And the American woodcock is a very, I would have to say, I don't use the word weird very often in a scientific lecture, but uh, it's a sandpiper that lives in the forest 
has all kinds of uh, unusual adaptations to that lifestyle. Uh, but you don't, you don't, most people don't typically picture sandpipers in this kind of environment. And this is one of my grad students here releasing a, a woodcock that they uh, caught last year. And camera works a little shaky, but there you can see it take off. So just a fantastic little bird with a lot of uh, charm to it. Truck. So I'm going to play just a short video here. And this introduces you to some of that technology that I mentioned. And this is a, uh, an app called Merlin. And this is just about two minutes, but it utilizes um, um, a lot of the latest computer uh, learning uh, technology to, to help people learn uh, bird songs. So I'll just play uh, maybe part of this or all of it. Here we go. the eBird community. So all those folks all over the world submitting their sightings to eBird makes it possible for us to build Merlin. And with all the recordings in the archive, we can build this amazing feature through collaboration with computer scientists that helps identify bird songs automatically. The challenge of identifying birds that are singing has been a problem the community has been working towards for many years. And recently, computer vision technology has made it possible to convert that sound into an image and then train the computers to identify the bird in that, essentially that image. We knew that we could convert audio to spectrograms to a visual representation and then use a computer vision toolkit to take the problem and, and try and solve it there. So as opposed to really treating this like an audio problem, we actually treat, treated it as a, a photo ID problem. Machine learning is great. It, it does have some really nice success stories, but you really need to involve the people that can get you the training data in order to improve these things and benchmark them. That's one of the things that the Lab of O, like, it's probably what makes it pretty unique and special is that it has both of those pieces kind of in spades. And so the technology that powers Merlin Photo ID is cool. It's, it's actually all the data that Cornell already had. That was the value proposition of the whole project. Merlin is a free app. We really wanted to make birds accessible to people because that moment when you learn the name of a bird is magical. You start to understand where that bird has traveled, what it needs to survive. It's our hope that we can continue to provide the habitats that birds need to survive in this world side by side with humans and intact ecosystems. So that was um, Cornell Lab of Ornithology developed that Merlin uh, app. And as, I, as she said, that's it's free and uh, you can just go out in a spring morning with your phone, hold it up in your backyard and it will just name every song that it hears and you'll you can actually learn the bird songs um, much easier than it was than when um brendan and ryan and i were learning them so uh, i'd encourage anybody that wants to get wants to be introduced to that or if you have children that are uh, interested in that just to see if you can get them to put that app on their phone ryan or brendan i'm doing or, it now <laughs> do, do you guys want to add anything to that brendan or ryan uh, I, I, I no, guess I learned them back in the day on the Peterson bird CDs, um, which I spent on pretty much the entire winter listening to them over and over and over again until I until I got a pretty good 
idea, but all the tools out now, it's never been easier to learn birds, as you said, and that's certainly a great tool. Right. I was a, a relatively similar way with just, I think I had a, a Audubon, Audubon bird app and that just had recordings. It didn't have the um, technology to record an ID for me. I just had to just repeatedly listen to the song over and over and over again. And then eventually it just kind of clicks. And then once you hear it, you go. <laughs> yeah. And I was just down in Costa Rica over this last spring break, and it has all, almost all the birds of Costa Rica in Merlin now too. So I don't know how much of the world is covered by that, but uh, it's really pretty astounding. It's like, you know, I remember this technology being talked about about 10 or 15 years ago, and it was a lot of people didn't think it was going to happen, but it's happened. So um, just two other, two other pieces of information, and then I have another uh, uh, song quiz for you. Uh, a few years ago in, in 2019, a, a really seminal paper was published uh, that uh, clearly documented the losses in numbers of birds in uh, the United States since 1970. So in the last 50 years, almost 30% of the individual birds that were present in the United States in 1970 are gone. So this doesn't mean that uh, uh, species have necessarily gone extinct. It just means that there's 30% fewer robins, 30% fewer uh, of many different species. So that was really alarming. It didn't surprise anyone who pays attention to bird conservation, but uh, it, was the, it was a very rigorous study that has uh, data that goes back um, all the way into the late 60s, I think, but certainly since 1970. And the reasons behind that, uh, we can get to in the question and answer if people, people want to. And then I wanted, wanted to mention one more thing. Uh, I, I've never had introduced Taylor Swift into my talks, but there was a great essay last fall written by a naturalist talking about how uh, really documenting the, the, um, the decline in references to natural, the natural world in popular music and how uh, a couple new albums by Taylor Swift really uh, introduced a lot more and are sort of bringing that back. And he was really uh, happy to see that. And some of you have heard of a term called nature deficit disorder. And that's this this idea that, uh, well, based on data that's been collected, that U.S. children average four to seven minutes of unstructured outdoor play per day today in these days and uh, seven and a half hours on electronic media. And this, I'm not really bashing electronic media, but I, I, I would advocate, advocate for uh, a balance and the things that can be learned and the confidence that can be built in children when they're outdoors doing things and exploring and using their curiosity. Uh, and certainly seven minutes on one and seven hours on the other seems to be out of balance to me. Okay, so now um, I have the first quiz question. I think this one, um, Sue can pull up a, yeah, so I'm going to play a song of, a, these are all common birds that I'm sure everyone or almost everyone in the audience has heard this bird a thousand times, if not 10,000 times in your life. And I'm going to play it and see if you can um, guess uh, what species this is. And it's among those listed there. Okay, I see the answers are coming in fast.
Okay, well, I'll just stop it there. So it looks like 57% um, black cap chickadee, next one, 18% American goldfinch, then we have 14% house sparrow and 7% wood thrush, and then 4% uh, European starling, and, uh, and one person in 111 said American crow. Well, that was indeed a black cap chickadee, and they, they have a, a couple different songs. The first one we sometimes call it the cheeseburger song. Kind of sounds like it's saying cheeseburger. So there's one, and now let's see if we can go to the next one. And we'll talk a little bit about why birds are singing, what the purpose of that, what does that serve for the bird? Let me see if I can move this to the next one here. So yeah, there's the black-capped chickadee. I often, so I often, when I hear them just saying that, I often hear another one saying, yada, instead of the other one that goes, yada, and everyone comes in, yada. Yeah, you, you could hear, you might be hearing two males that are that are both singing and uh, sort of def trying to define their territory and advertise for a female. They're yeah. always one whole tone off, and they're coming in at the at the second tone. Oh yeah, well you've tone. got. Well, you do hear, especially in the beginning of the season, you'll sometimes hear birds sort of practicing their song, mm -hmm. and they'll sing a little bit out of. Or they may sing a couple notes a little bit off, as they're kind of working on it and trying to get it perfected. Interesting. White-throated sparrows, you hear that. That's not uncommon. We might uh, actually hear one of those later. So here's another one. Another common bird that you've all heard, probably if you're in the United States, many times. I heard this bird singing uh, just today in my neighborhood in uh, Hancock, Michigan. Are the robins back? Yeah, they're getting. They're coming back right now. They aren't. They're not abundant, but there are some certainly. Okay, so that looks like um, I'll stop that there, and then uh, that one people did well with. Seventy-four percent said it, uh, American robin, and I'll um, pause that. And then we had a few American goldfinches. So it's really that kind of um, cheer up, cheerly, cheerio, that kind of sing-songy, cheerful uh, quality that tells you that's an American robin. And I've given sort of a habitat indication with the photos. I mean, everywhere from, you can find American robins nesting in old growth forest in the UP, and you can find them in your, in your yard nesting, you know, on your utility light. Uh, so they're very uh, plastic in terms of their habitat uh, affinities. Uh, Brendan or Ryan, you want to say anything about robins? Yeah, mine came back a couple weeks ago, um, and they're coming back in larger numbers. This is their time. Nice to hear them. Uh, most likely early in the morning. Um, they stop singing a little later most of the time. And come June, when the rest of the birds are singing, they're you don't hear them as much. You know, they're sitting on nests, and and they'll often have two broods uh, throughout the year. Yeah. So that means they can, they'll nest, they'll lay a bunch of eggs and then raise those and then they'll start over and lay a whole another bunch of eggs. So they can, they're very productive that way. Okay, so you do, see how we're doing do for they, time. Do I have the same robins coming back? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, if birds are successful in nesting, many species show a lot of uh, uh, site, what's called site fidelity, which is they come back to their same uh, territories, not always the same nest site, but sometimes even the same nest site. Oh, okay. 
sorry. And robins are only coming from, you know, Illinois or southern Wisconsin or sometimes a little further back, but there are some species that go to South America, come all the way back and nest in the same site that they nested in in Minnesota the year before. So for some birds, it's a quite a remarkable trek. Yeah. Okay, here's one here now. This one, I would say when I get questions about songs in the UP, this one comes up very often because uh, it's a little bit of a harder bird to see. Maybe we can start the poll again. Uh, I don't think you gave me that poll question. Oh, didn't I? No, okay. Sorry. That's okay. That was my fault. Actually, J there you heard that uh, sort of frequency switch right there in that last song of that uh, white. So that's a white-throated sparrow, and they sing the um, poor Sam Peabody, 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 which is a uh, mnemonic device that people use to help them learn that song. So that's a real uh, clear bright, beautiful song, White-Throated Sparrow. And there's a picture of it right here. I want to hear somebody sing it. Brandon, can you sing it? <laughs> can, I, can I sing a White-Throated Sparrow song? I mean, I, 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 I can, I. I can sort of whistle that, not great. How about you, Ryan? Yeah, not great. I could try, but it might not work well. <laughs> No, not really. Okay, so this I'll do. I think I have one more here. I'll play. See if... That's a crow or a raven. <laughs> well, listen to the diversity of songs as we get through here. kind of scary you make these like hollow log <laughs> some pretty fantastic sounds yeah they have a, of a it's a common raven it looks like 53 percent of people got that and uh, most other people chose the crow so they're those two songs are similar. The Ravens is almost always deeper and more guttural, although there is a little overlap between them sometimes. So that's a common Raven. And uh, there's a Raven and they're more of a kind of a deep forest uh, wildland bird than a crow is. They don't, we see them here in Houghton and Hancock, but it's only because we're so close to the kind of closed forest that the Ravens like. Uh, and they're usually just kind of flying over. And there's a, I, I promised uh, Janet I'd show you some pictures of uh, ravens and crows and uh, how you can tell them apart. And some of it is the size and the size of the bill and then also the shape of the tail. You notice it's much more um, kind of yeah, a blunt. No, it was, it was a raven who came down for my dog hair. Definitely. Yeah, well, they would love that. Ryan, do you know if, you know if, uh, if crows line their nest with hair the way ravens do? I really don't. I know ravens bring all kinds of crazy stuff to their nests. One time out in the wilderness, uh, just doing general uh, surveys, I found like a, a, a milk ring, a coin, a piece of Play-Doh, and I was wondering what was going on. I looked up and there is a, a raven nest with, uh, with a parent and two young looking, looking right down at me. So they bring all kinds of weird stuff back to their nest. 
Oh, that's good. That's and a good they, story. They, and they're, real, they're, they're really attracted to shiny human-made items, and they'll take them you know, way out to the wilderness nest. That's hilarious. Yeah, and, the, and ravens and crows are the, belong to a, the Corvidae family. They're sometimes called corvids, and they're among the, the most, uh, it's hard to use the word intelligent because that's a hard thing to measure really objectively, but they, they can problem solve. They can make tools and use tools. They do a lot of things that we associate with like higher, higher um, level learning. Um, let's see how we're doing with time, 32. Maybe I'll move through this. I had some uh, winter wren stuff, but I, I want to, no, oh, we want to hear the winter run. Come on. Oh, do we have time? Okay. Well, let's listen to this. This is as you listen to this, you'll hear the full speed winter run, and then it'll play it at half and quarter speed. And what you'll notice is like all the all the variation that's hard for us to pick up at full speed becomes clear as we slow the song down. Track eight, winter run song at normal speed. Winter Wren Song, one half normal speed. Winter Wren Song, one quarter normal speed. So what you what you can kind of appreciate better at those slow speeds is just how complicated that song is and what the bird is doing with like little repeated sections and then variation and then other repeated sections, very much like a uh, like a jazz musician um, and never singing the same song twice. So they're constantly changing it and varying it and. Uh, really uh the winter wren and, and it's also one of the longest duration songs of any bird in our area so um i think what that suggests is that there's a lot of information in that song that that bird is including that is then uh, being evaluated by potential mates so it's females do sometimes sing in many species but it's primarily the song the function of song for males is to attract a female and also to advertise a uh, sort of territorial possession of a certain territory for breeding. So any comments on any of that from either Janet or Brendan or uh, Ryan? If you ever find yourself in Copper Harbor, go to Estevant Pines and in, I would say probably by like late April, May timeframe, winter wrens are seen everywhere up there. 
It's beautiful area that is nice, mature pines that are over 100 years old, very thick and very dense, moist understory. And the winter ends, they just love it. They love it. Where is it again? Um, Estevant Pines, it's in Copper Harbor at the tip of the Keweenaw. Okay. Yes, what, 150 or so acres of old growth white pine. So yeah, so the winter winds will be here in another two or three weeks arriving. So here's maybe, I think I may have two more questions. Uh, so which of the below is not a reason birds vocalize? I don't know if, uh, there we go, there's our poll. <laughs> maybe I sort of gave this one away already. So yeah, birds are birds are attracting a mate, defending a territory. They have other vocalizations to sort of uh, contact calls to maintain uh, acoustic connection with a with a flock or with a mate, and sometimes they'll vocalize uh, different sounds to frighten away predators. But they're certainly not doing it for our benefit. However, uh, we're we're the um, the lucky um, we're in a lucky position that we can enjoy that uh, beautiful song uh, of so many birds. So. Uh, but those, that's a little bit of uh, on why birds sing and the functions of song. And then this is the last poll I know. Um, and so we're up here in, the, in uh, the, a cold place, and you can read that and go ahead and answer uh, much of the year. Uh, but yet we have some of the most uh, species rich uh, breeding bird communities in the summer. And uh, so not a lot of birds in the winter, but lots and lots of species here in the summer. Let's see if how people come in here. This one's a little trickier, maybe. Oh, so what percent of bird species that are found in the UP in summer stay around the entire year? Yeah, so That's these are birds that don't migrate, they, they breed here in the summer, they stay here through the winter. Like a black-capped chickadee is a good example, the one we talked about earlier. And it's... Um, Looks like people have had time. It's about 10%. So uh, that was tricky. Uh, so about 90% of our birds that are here in the summer leave and go somewhere else like robins, uh, winter wrens migrate. Um, and do you, want, do you have something, Janet? No, it, it just it's just too cold, right? It's too cold for them? Yeah, and there are some resources like insects that are, you know, only woodpeckers and a few species can actually access uh, overwintering insects in, in the bark of trees. So uh, if you're really specialized on fruits or insects or flying insects, for example, you just can't make a living up here in the winter. So um, the, other, the, the more difficult question is like, why do they return uh, once they get down to Guatemala or southern Mexico or Jamaica? Why not just stay there? <laughs> um, and uh, that's a whole other, uh, the, the simple answer for that is that there's a, there's a big pulse and abundance of food up here and less competition and longer day length that actually has apparently been beneficial enough to, to uh, cause birds to make that dangerous migration, many species of birds to do that. So, but you have to take my ornithology class, I guess, to dip into that more. Um, I think it's probably debatable whether the pandemic actually made, made birding cool, but it certainly grew numbers of birders. Um, um, 
there are a lot of people who were stuck inside looking for something to do uh, that was less social. And you could always watch birds out your window or take a walk and look at birds. A little bit of information on the numbers of birders. Uh, there are about 45 million. Uh, this is a survey that's done by the Fish and Wildlife Service every, uh, not every year, but periodically. About 20% of the population is considered bird watchers or birders. And we can get into that distinction if you want to in the questions. Uh, 57 million people feed birds. Uh, and interestingly, and, and really positively, the majority of birders are females. So it's a it's a, uh, a recreational activity that's um, accessible to anyone. And you don't have to live in a wilderness area. You can bird watch in Central Park in New York. Um, and you can you can watch birds almost anywhere. And you can see a little bit of a breakdown on the age. Uh, birders do tend to be older, although hopefully that's changing. Uh, and young, more young people are getting into it as it becomes more cool. And then just a couple uh, bits on uh, what I mentioned earlier, I'll, I'll kind of finish on this, and that's the, uh, the sort of mental and physical benefits of watching birds, whether you're a serious birder or just someone that pays attention as they're taking their dog for a walk. Uh, this was a study that was done in Europe where they uh, included, they measured um, self life satisfaction for the sample size of 26,000 people in many different countries. And it turns out that uh, people that live near natural areas with a greater diversity of bird were demonstrably happier. Uh, the study found that seeing 10% more bird species generate satisfaction on par with a, a comparable increase in income. Uh, a study published in 2021 uh, found that hearing or seeing birds improves people's mental well-being for up to eight hours. Uh, I mean, there's a reason I think people have set aside parks uh, throughout urban areas uh, because there's sort of a intuitive understanding that people need those places to walk and to um, encounter the natural world, even when uh, most of their world is the built environment. So just quickly, uh, exposure to nature has been shown to promote recovery following surgery. That was a really groundbreaking study. You can look that up yourself if you want. Lower blood pressure, relieve stress, increase positive mood, reduce mental fatigue, reduce crime and aggressive behavior, and contribute to personal and community identity. So birds are a part of that. They're not, uh, nature is a, a broader term, but um, birds are certainly an important part of what uh, people enjoy when they're outside. So just to, to kind of finally review, birds can be found everywhere. They're intelligent, they're beautiful to see and hear. They can lift your mood. Um, I think this one's really profound. I spent, uh, I spent a sabbatical in Hawaii, another sabbatical in New Zealand, where very few of the birds migrate. Nothing really migrates except for a few shorebirds in Hawaii. And I found uh, I really missed this time of year when nothing really changed in terms of the bird life around you. And here in the temperate zone, uh, that sort of cycle of renewal every year with the return of birds is really um, something I enjoy a lot. And I, I, I love this example. Uh, the next time you feel like you're struggling or you're getting cold out in the winter, think about uh, a chickadee out there all winter long with no warm place to go. Their body temperature is 104 degrees Fahrenheit inside. They have to maintain that day and night and they weigh the same as two quarters. So think of the, uh, of the determination and the perseverance and the resilience that it takes to fuel that, that kind of metabolism all winter long, day and night, day after day. 
Um, birds watch and recognize individual faces. I'll skip over that, but that's a really interesting discovery from crows uh, a few years ago. Um, I've always felt, I don't have any proof of this, that watching birds improves your visual acuity and your awareness of everything around you. Uh, training your eyes to watch for movement, I think helps you when you're sort of turning out into traffic even. That is completely untested, I'll be the first to admit that. But I think that kind of sensitivity to what's around you when you that comes with birding has a lot of other benefits in other parts of your life. Uh, finally, birding takes you to places that are good for you to go from urban parks to natural areas. And, um, and you could, something you can do your entire life. <laughs> so how do you do it? You, you can get download Merlin, buy a, an old fashioned field guide if you like. Uh, there's a lot of citizen science using eBird that people participate in. Uh, binoculars are cheap. I think I mentioned that. And then here, this is the last one I'll, I'll share. This is a local webcam. If you go onto this, this uh, website in the top right there, you can watch right now 24-7 a pair of great horned owls that are sitting on two eggs right here in Hancock, Michigan. And um, that's a real fun to, to watch that uh, nesting uh, effort that the owls put in to raising those chicks then and bringing them food. So I'll end there and see if Ryan or Brendan want to add anything or open it up to questions. All right, and I'm going to I'm going to chime in um, with just a few remarks. So first of all, um, audience, you can ask questions by typing in the Q&A. And so um, uh, start looking through David and Brendan just to, to decide what questions you want to answer. And if you want to answer it, you're going to click answer live and then we'll, we'll answer it kind of next. So let's just do one at a time. So while you're taking a look at the questions, <clears throat> we just have a couple of, of um, things to say to the audience. First of all, thank you audience for being with us today and, and all season. This is the last Husky Bites uh, Zoom webinar that we will be having uh, uh, this season seven, this spring. Um, so that's the first thing, thank you. Second thing is um, anybody in the Na in Nashville, Tennessee area or anybody with a son or a granddaughter or anything like that in that area, I will be there on April 20th. We're gonna be having an alumni reunion event. And I'm, I'm mentioning it to you because I mentioned one of these when I was in, going to be in Texas and one of our listeners sent his son and granddaughter to meet me there. And, uh, and it turns out this granddaughter is gonna be coming to Michigan Tech to study uh, one, of the, one of our chemistry majors. So April 20th, 6 p.m. Central Time, we'll be at Von Elrod's Beer Hall and Kitchen in Nashville, Tennessee. This is an event that will be is posted um, on the uh, alumni events. Uh, and so you can, or you can just send me an email and I'll send you information about that. So another quick announcement is um, that the, our next Husky Bites, we, um, we are always invited to um, alumni reunion where we give, I'm giving a presentation kind of in person, but we're also showing it um, remotely. So you have a way to participate in reunion, which is um, always the first, right around the first weekend in August. And that will also be posted um, with the alumni events. Uh, and then um, finally, I, I wanted to just relay um, this anecdote from um, one, of, one, of, one of our wonderful alumni. So he, um, so we sent him one of these stickers and we're going to be sending stickers and a bookmark out. If you would like to get a sticker and a bookmark, um, 
we will be sending them to people who we have addresses for um, who attended uh, several um, Husky Bites. Uh, and if you haven't already told us your address, just drop us an email to engineering at mtu.edu with your address and we'll be sending these in an envelope um, off to you just to thank you for joining us. But anyway, a little bit more about the sticker. So, um, so uh, this is from Matt, who's one of our alumni in mechanical engineering. So uh, just a short time ago, he gave his six-year-old son a Michigan Tech sticker um, as part, which we had sent him as a reward for chores. It was one of those parenting moments where you improvise, but this one was a hit as he believes he's indoctrinated him to the idea of becoming a, a, a mechanical engineer. It's become part of his identity. So he put this six-year-old put the sticker on his water bottle, which is um, a daily part of life in Houston, Texas. Um, uh, one of the few ways a six-year-old can display tribal signals with a big smile. But he wasn't sure what MTU meant. When I explained what it meant and that it was my school, he says, okay, I'll go. And then uh, his wife and him laughed out loud and said, that was easy. Uh, and But then he's, he, this, this six-year-old loves pictures of snow. So he hit the website to show him and found a beautiful picture of the um, our NASA Mars rover. Uh, and he goes, oh, I'm totally going to go. So I just want to let you know, we will be sending stickers out to folks for which we have your address. And if we do not have your address, um, just send it to us, engineeringmtu.edu. And, and finally, Matt concluded, basically, Janet, I know April's tough. April and May is tough as the snow disintegrates and melts and goes away. But it is, it is the birds come at this time. So that kind of perks us all up. All right, so with that, I'm gonna turn it over. So um, thank you everybody. And um, we're gonna take questions now and we will see you for season eight. Season eight begins, uh, I think I picked the deadline of this. Um, we will be starting off, um, it's the Monday after Labor Day, um, uh, which is, I forget, but it's something, it's in September. All right, Dave, Brendan, Ryan, do you see any questions you wanna answer? Yeah, let me see if Ryan or, um... Brendan, see a question they want to start with. There's lots of other teams that have been suggested. <laughs> yeah, I saw that Oregon Ducks. <laughs> I could start with there was one some uh, somebody said uh, what size and type of binoculars are best for birding. I think most people are happiest with about an eight power, and then the the second number is the aperture opening and so about a five times the magnification is what you're shooting for so like eight by 40 those are good kind of general purpose uh, eight is the magnification 40 is the uh, sort of the light gathering capacity and you want bright binoculars so i would steer away from any kind of small compact binoculars unless they're sort of really high end because they tend to be darker and they like on a cloudy day in houghton like this they're not going to perform as well for you I see. I want. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. I can't see you, but okay. Yeah, it says the host has stopped my video. But um, anyway, I'll, I see a, a question here from Jerry Wolf, and he says, "What's your least favorite bird and why?" And what comes to mind for me is <laughs> is the Australian emu. So I was in in the outback, and I was uh, making uh, some burgers on a grill, and an emu came up out of nowhere and and grabbed a burger and uh, ate it which was okay, I still had another four or five left, but then he came back for the next one and I have a family to, to, to feed there. So I wasn't gonna let him get my burger. So I checked my water bottle and I threatened him with it and he was still coming and I, and I, I, I had to bash him on the head. 
several times to get them to to back off. But but that was our food. That's all that we had. So uh, that was pretty intimidating to cut to see a bird that was taller than me with a head almost my size stealing my food. So I still oh. like them, but you know that's one time I wasn't particularly happy with uh, with that. Uh, you know. That's hilarious. Good story, Brendan. You you have any questions you wanna? Well, I see one that says the Keweenaw is in which migration flyway, and maybe I get some help answering this question, but I believe we're in somewhat of an overlap, mainly the, um, the, 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 what I would call the Eastern, um, like the Mississippi flyway, if you will. Um, yeah, and I think the, the flyway idea is hold some, um, it's valuable for certainly waterfowl and uh, birds that uh, tend to follow uh, sort of geographic features like rivers and coastlines. For most songbirds, like the birds that I, we were playing the songs for that migrate, they don't really restrict their movement or even become concentrated that much in a flyway. Oh, I can see you now, Ryan. So the flyway idea, I think, kind of came out of uh, a lot of studies of waterfowl and maybe shorebirds to some extent, but yeah, I would agree. I'd say it's more of a, it's useful concept, but it doesn't say, you know, all your migrants are going to follow this path or this path. Yeah. It just shows a path of concentration for certain taxes you alluded to. Um, somebody said we're in, located in Northern Jersey and noticed an osprey today. Is that typical? Yeah, I think on the East Coast, I, I you know, it would be very weird to see an osprey here in, in early April, but uh, over on those coasts, I think, I don't, I don't think that's particularly early. I don't know if you have a sense of that, uh, Ryan. No, that sounds about right on the coast. They're, yeah, they would, they'll, they'll be here in about late April. Ospreys. Yeah. I see a question about pelicans there and where to see them. Um, yeah, we do get them on Lake Superior here. I have seen them in, in Hilton County after you extremely lucky. Uh, but down in the south central UP, Delta, Menominee County, and in particular, the lower part of Green Bay, there's some nesting islands off of the, right off of downtown Green Bay um, in lower part of the bay where there's hundreds of nesting pelicans, very easy to see there. But, the, but they're becoming more and more common, but there's, there's no current uh, nesting colony in Lake Superior yet, and there certainly could be because they're becoming more common in the Great Lakes. There seems to be somewhat of a um, slowly but surely increasing repetitiveness that I've noticed of um, sightings in Lake Linden area. Um, I had, I think it was what last, sometime last, mid, late last May, I had five of them flying over Dollar Bay, American white pelicans that were heading up towards Lake Linden, which is, I mean, not a terrible area for them to consider um, as a nest site in distant future. Yeah, I mean, they, they need a place where there's not going to be any any land-based predators, so a, a small offshore island, and they're, those are pretty limited. Yeah, I've seen over 50 over in the Porky's. 56 was my, my high count for the UP, or for that part of the UP. So, um, yeah, they come through. They, they nest in the northern uh, plain states, so more to the west. Uh, I think the late 80s is when they started colonizing the lower part of Green Bay, and they're becoming more and more common since then. Um, somebody has a question or an observation. I see robins here year round. It is true that uh, some robins don't actually migrate. They're kind of cons considered a facultative migrant, migrant meaning unlike um, some birds that can't, it's impossible for them to make it through the winter. Robins can by eating fruits and, and sometimes other things, uh, aquatic insects, sometimes if there's muddy 
streams they can find food and so some years you'll you'll see robins pretty regularly through the winter and they're not necessarily early migrants they're just ones that have decided that they think they can they can make it through the winter so james suggests we have a birding hike session during summer alumni reunion david that sounds fun yeah, I'll suggest that to Jen. Um, I'll, I will take that as a as an action item, and and so that might be volunteering you. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fine. I I love to do that kind of stuff. Is that in uh, what is that September? It's around. It's around. No, it's it's um, first. It's early, early August. It's usually the oh, first Thursday and Friday of August. Yeah. Yeah, we could go down to the Nara Trails or somewhere uh, Tech Trails. I'll, I will send an email to her and copy you at the end of this. I'm not, we're not promising it will happen because there's, they have a lot of things they do during reading, but I think that would be really fun. That's a good idea. Yeah. Somebody uh, mentioned uh, we have crows here in Washington, not ravens. And then there's some other comments that the actual, I, I kind of skipped over that, but there was a really interesting study where they, they were banned, they were capturing crows and banding them and releasing them. And they noticed that the crows that they had caught would uh, scream and cry and put up a big fuss when the same person who had banded them showed up again, just as they walked under the trees. And so they did an experiment with masks and repeated it with different people with the same mask. And they, what they discovered is that crows recognized individual human faces. And they were, they were really reacting to the person that had kind of caught them and persecuted them momentarily and not much to people who they thought were friendly or not really representing that kind of threat. So that was a, so it really was like, it's, it's your face. You're not just an anonymous human to a crow. You're actually an individual. Pretty interesting. <laughs> There's so many questions out here. Andy wrote something that a really gross question that I'm not going <laughs> to read, but it made me laugh. <laughs> Can bald eagles, Poop a 50 foot stream. <laughs> Can they what? Poop? He once saw a bald eagle relieve itself from about 50 feet up in a white pine next to a lake. Yeah. There's a really funny paper um, on projectile pooping in, in penguins. <laughs> I think someone did, did their master's or doctorate on it, but actually showing you know, the force re required to get just the right angle to make it just out of the uh, the nest. And it was this really complicated physics equation that they had incorporated into it. And, and they even <laughs> had, had drawn diagrams of the penguins kind of bent over, relieving themselves out of the nest. <laughs> what does this come to? All right, we have to change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so is there any way to know what a specific a specific bird song call means like if i hear it in the wild can i know if it's mating fighting other communication etc definitely um i would say in most contexts like a chickadee when it's saying chickadee dee 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 it, that that's not it singing to its mate necessarily that is, that is more so a um i i would say a contact or often aggression aggression if you will if it finds like a um, eastern screech owl for instance that is like roosting in a tree you'll hear a bunch of chickadees going at it so yeah they did actually it was a really interesting study maybe 10 or 12 maybe it's 15 years ago now where they they presented chickadees with different potential predators from small owls 
even smaller than a screech owl, screech owls, and then up to bigger threats. And they learned that they sort of encode in the number of DDDDDs the degree of alarm, the mm. degree of threat, because they're communicating to all their other chickadee flockmates. You know, if it's a small owl, that's actually the most dangerous to a chickadee because big owls wouldn't waste their time on a chickadee, but small owls would. And they're, they're, they were apparently represented the greatest threat to a chickadee. Did we answer this? Do, do we see sandhill cranes in Copper County? Country? We do, well, yeah. The one good place to go would be Arnheim or the South Sturgeon Slows. It's just south of the Berger-Houghton County line between Chassel and, and Berger. That's a great place to see cranes. Yeah, I just had a couple of them along Sturgeon River Road yesterday, actually. There is, there is um, two or three, two or three that were, that were calling and walking in what little open grass areas have opened up. Yes, the Sturgeon Road is probably the, the best spot. Uh, you can get some really high count. You can see hundreds of them you know, probably in a few weeks when they really start staging. <laughs> I love this. Uh, uh, Marcia says the woodcock is nocturnal, correct? Now I know what makes that call I hear in the woods behind my house at night. Thank you. <laughs> I sort of answered. Yeah, they are. Uh, I mean, they're active in the day, but uh, they call mostly at night in the right at dusk. So they're not easy to see woodcock and they're very cryptic. And I think somebody else to take it back to the, the poop theme. Somebody else asked a question. Does a woodcock poop near its nest? And as as Ryan sort of suggested with penguins, birds are actually very fussy about keeping their nests clean for for obvious reasons for hygiene and pests and bacteria and things. So they usually are pretty fastidious about around the nest. Yeah, American Robins actually, um, and I've seen this myself, it was quite horrid to watch as a, you know, up and coming birder watching an American Robin eat, eating poop out of its young's nest, but but they, they, they do that, um, from my understanding, as a, um, or A, it's because it cleans the nest, and B, because it's, you know, protein. <laughs> well, a lot of songbirds will produce what, what are called fecal sacs, where all the, all the excrements co concentrated in a, in a little sac that the parent can fly off with. Oh, okay. And then, and then drop it outside of the nest. Oh. That, yeah, so their, their poop, instead of coming out liquid, it's like encased in a little membrane, and yeah. the parent can pick that up and drop it away from the nest. So, yeah, that's another way to... And it's also probably uh, reduces the whitewash indicator of a nest when they're trying to keep it from hidden from predators. So I've, I've noticed this too. I mean, so it seems like the robins come there and then you have like 12 on your lawn or something like this, like a large number. And then they're there feeding and then they kind of, a couple remain behind, right? So they, they do migrate in a group, I guess, right? Yeah. Janet, you got to become a birder. Look at what a good observer are, you are. A lot of people wouldn't even have noticed that. Yeah, because you're seeing the migratory push of many robins as they're moving and, and maybe choosing your yard for a few days and then they disperse but a few of them will set up territories then all right and, then, well, and there's a certain dense go ahead one of our alumni notices this too he his yard is even healthier than mine he had a quick count of over 60 of them in his yard so yeah. our i'm going to state the obvious so using pesticides and fertilizers and stuff isn't probably helpful to our robins when they're trying to get worms and things 
No. Which explains all the weeds in my yard, everybody. I'm trying to be healthy to the, you know. Well, uh, you know, didn't somebody say a weed is just a plant that nobody's discovered a use for yet or, or something? But, you know, I think uh, diversity of plantings in your yard and using a minimal or no, uh, uh, you know, herbicides and pesticides, I, mean, yep. I think that's good for a lot of biodiversity, but certainly for birds. No, my, my neighbors think I'm nuts because I'm, I'm, I, I do a lot of hand weeding of certain kinds of things that I'm trying to you know, that spread out like this, so that makes it hard for any grass to grow and plantains and stuff, I, you know, I, but, but I swear that's what the birds, like it makes, I think that that's where the best worms are is underneath those big leaves. <laughs> so, so, all right, I think we should begin to start thinking of wrapping it up. So why don't we all handle, take one more question each all around. Starting with either Dave or Brendan or Ryan. What bird tops your life bird list? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I, I mean, I mean if, I, if I'm to pick a favorite, I really can't. I mean, I love them all, honestly. They all have their own sort of unique um, thing about them that you notice over the years in the field and, and, and being a, 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 a citizen scientist. Yeah, and, and Brendan just assumes everybody knows what a life list is because birders talk about that so much. But that's that's just simply a list of birds that you've seen in your lifetime. And people have yard lists and they have county lists and birds are big. Birders are big into listing. So um, that's what he's referring to there. It's just uh, an e-bird is a really useful way to do that. If you want to start a list, uh, you can enter them in there and it'll just kind of automatically keep it for you. Ryan, do you have a question you want to tackle? Oh, uh, there's a lot to choose from here, so it's hard to, people are going to be disappointed if their question isn't going to be answered, so. Um. I could answer, uh, Leonard Bowman is asking, how do we know that birds have better eyesight than we do? How would you figure that out? Um, and one way that uh, people have done that is by looking at the density of rods and cones or light receptor cells in the, in the retina of birds, and it's, I'm forgetting the exact number, the one that's often, um, used is a European hawk called a buzzard. It's not actually a vulture, but it's a, uh, and it's, do you remember that, Ryan? Is it like six times as many or three times as many, the density of, of light receptor cells, which is probably analogous to kind of the granularity or the um, sort of density of pixels, maybe? The, yeah, the not, only, not only that, but their, their flicker fusion frequency is, is much higher. So the amount of images that they can see in any given second is much higher. So when they're when they're flying quickly, they're able to make that turn at just the, the last minute, whereas you know we 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 would certainly miss it if we're moving that quickly and, and hit whatever um, target. So that's an another element of visual acuity that might not get as much attention. I know one way that that contributed to understanding that they see UV light is that. Uh, some small mammal urine actually uh, fluoresces in, in when it's exposed to UV, and we don't see it, but uh, uh, they did an experiment with kestrels in Europe, and they, they uh, artificially, I don't know where they got all the small mammal urine, but they got some small mammal urine, and they, they, they basically enhanced it in some fields uh, over what were the background rate, and they saw that the birds spent a lot more time flying over those fields thinking, boy, there must be a lot of mammals in this and it was invisible, the urine's invisible to our eye, but apparently uh, those kestrels could pick that up. Oh, I'll be darned. 
Yeah, I'll address one question here. It's about the irritable woodpecker and if it's uh, still extant or not. It's not one thing that I, that I researched, but I remember back in 2005 when I was an uh, early undergrad, I decided, um, so that's when the, there was a big um, announcement and, and made all the, 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 the news articles that the, the woodpecker had been refound in, in Arkansas. And there was this video that was, that was being shown as the proof and it was thought to be pretty concrete evidence. And I got um, in a car with a bunch of my buddies over spring break with a canoe and went down to Arkansas to, to, to try to find it. So we spent spring break paddling around uh, these, uh, these um, beautiful ancient cypress swamps looking for them. But it turns out there wasn't any other evidence that was uh, concrete and it's thought that that video was probably a, a leucistic pillated woodpecker. But given the fact that there really hasn't been any concrete evidence uh, since then, I think it's very strong evidence that it's very unlikely that there's still irritable woodpeckers out there. I think if there was, given there, there after that, that kind of triggered a huge search to try to find this um, amazingly large and elusive woodpecker and there really hasn't been anything concrete since then. So I'd say they're very likely extinct. I, I, I'm seeing some questions like, what can we do to kind of just help with, um, help or help birds, right? To help them stop decreasing. So let's imagine most of us are living in a suburban house somewhere. I mean, I know this is not very suburban here, but many people are probably in, the, in a suburban household. So what, what, what can your typical person do? Well, um, I mean, I think you're, you can broaden your understanding of birds by just paying attention to them. You can, uh, and I think that can lead to uh, participating in your local, your local Audubon Society, joining that. I mean, they do work to protect habitat for birds and uh, uh, you can um, support rehabilitation. Some people are really uh, love the idea of supporting uh, rehab or helping injured birds recover and then be re-released into the wild. Um, don't you, let your cat outside. Yeah, you can certainly keep your cat indoors. Cats, uh, we, I, I talked about that one third of, or 30% of birds disappearing in the last, uh, 50 or 60 years in, in the United States. And cats are a big part of that, sadly, uh, domestic cats that are outdoors. So, um, we got a cat uh, a few years ago and I take it outside and put it on a leash and walk it. And my brother teases me about it. He, he said to, the first time I said, he may be on this call, I think. He said, oh, you're one of those kind of people. But I'm telling you, it's like really quality time with my cat. The cat gets like everything it wants in the grass and the smells and the sights. And then, you know, nobody gets hurt. It's really quite fun. How about you guys, would you add anything to that? Um, Ryan? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say help elect politicians that are supportive of the fact that uh, we have a biodiversity crisis here that's that's urgent. We need to take care of it. And I mean, there's a lot of a lot of little feel good things that we can do as in, in individuals. But really what we have to, to do is more collective as, uh, as a society. I'd say one good example, having traveled all over the, the world to see birds, one place that has got it right is uh, New Zealand. You can um, turn on the TV and the children's cartoons, they're native, they're native birds. You go to the grocery store, the kids get little, get little packs of, of like, you know, baseball style cards with all their native birds on them. And they have massive overwhelming support of protection for their country's biodiversity. So even though they, they've already lost half of their land birds, those species that are left are actually mostly increasing in number. And it's just from widespread public support. Good. No, very, very good. So, I mean, yeah, just kind of tooting uh, the horn there, uh, like we're, we're doing, talk about it, uh, get politicians behind it. Um, 
Yeah. Well, and and everybody loves birds. I mean, it was interesting just watching um, Dave. I don't know if you noticed it, but as you're playing the bird songs, I, I was just noticing Brendan grinning, and of course I was smiling, and, and I bet everybody out there was smiling just just to hear just to hear songbirds. I mean, you know, it's, it has been a long winter here, so uh, but yeah. it, it you brought me joy today. So thank you. Oh yeah, and uh, everybody, thank you for your time and and uh, audience. You know, thank you for your loyalty and for those of you who are joining us for the first time. We this is a regular thing. We always uh, learn something new, and I definitely uh, learned a lot today. So um, really, really, really appreciate um, your preparation and especially the songs. Thank you, thank you, David. Thank you. Yeah, Ryan. my pleasure. Thank you, Janet, for inviting me in, and uh, thanks everyone. All right, we'll see you in the fall, second, first Monday after Labor Day, uh, and uh, have a good summer. Go Huskies. Yeah, uh, go, any Husky. <laughs> good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs>